Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai. One of the single most important articulations in our tradition is affirming that the God who is the God of the Jewish people, the God of our past and our present and our future, is a God who is Echad, a God who is one, who is singular and unitary. Maybe is my initial response to that. But just hold that hovering question for a second. Two articles appeared in the LA Times this week on the same day, I think even on the same page, that gave me a little bit of pause. The first was the article that was explaining that the actor Alec Baldwin is going to be charged with, I think, involuntary manslaughter as a result of the shooting that took place on the set a over a year ago in New Mexico. And the article was exploring the whole story and the question about whether or not he or anyone else was going to be held legally responsible for the tragic loss of life that took place on the set. And in describing the legal case for, in favor of at least charging him, he was presumed innocent until convicted, but at least charging him with this crime, it's a criminal case, there was a quote from Joshua Kastenberg, who's a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School. And the quote was, I can't imagine a scenario where the person who fires the gun is relieved of any responsibility. Compelling voice from authoritative source. As you're reading the article, it makes you think, well, that must be the right approach. And I heard a voice inside my own, saying, own head saying, I wonder, was there another voice or more of them who disagreed but were not quoted in the article? Did this professor, Joshua Kastenberg, did he ever himself say something? that might have pushed in the opposite direction? Or are we supposed to understand his sentence, which was the only side that was presented in the article, as if it was coming from the heavens? Same page of the LA Times, there was an article about a recent push in the state of Florida against the notion of including at least this curriculum for an African-American studies AP class. And the controversy regarding the pulling back from this class. And in the article, a woman named Sharon Courtney was quoted. She's a teacher at a high school in Peekskill, New York, near where I used to live. And she teaches this class, or a version of this class in her high school in New York. And she wrote, or she said, there's nothing objectionable. It's history that hasn't been traditionally taught in the US in a K through 12 setting. But it's also history that once known and understood could change race relations and improve them. She was the educator who was quoted in the article. Put aside the content for a second and whether or not you agree or disagree with it. There was an interesting editorial choice in a news article, not an editorial. Was there another teacher, maybe even in the same school or the same school district, who felt differently? Were there maybe many of them, more than those who agreed with this teacher? How much should that matter? 
If something is true and accurate, but it's not the whole truth, how true is it? Earlier in the week in the LA Times, there was a fascinating, powerful, really important op-ed that was written by a man named Clyde Ford. I think it came out on MLK Day. And it was sort of an article written towards what he would call the real MLK, and not the simplified one that is sometimes used and quoted in our community, in our history. He wrote, MLK was a troublemaker. And that's why we need him. That was the name of the article. And he discussed and was angry at the all too facile uses of quotes of Dr. Martin Luther King by people who, according to Clyde, live and do politics in a way that pushes against what MLK really thought. He said it's so common that we quote the sweetest and most anodyne statements of this man, unconsciously or maybe even willfully shunting his other material to the periphery because it's not convenient to our case. He wrote, the man we honor on Monday should not be the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the convenient hero, soothing the conscience of an anxious America, but King the inconvenient hero, challenging this country to undergo a radical revolution of values to live up to its ideals. And he was saying that when people quote just parts of the king legacy that support their politics, they don't perpetuate his legacy. They trample it. He gave many examples, including from the famous I have a dream speech. He says, what normally gets quoted from that speech? He said the stuff about sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners sitting at the table of brotherhood with little black boys and black girls joining hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers, and with people, of course, being judged not by the, con by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Those are beautiful images. But according to Ford, King's speech was aspirational, not representational. We weren't there yet at that time. And Ford thinks that King would think that we're not there, even now, it's still just a dream. He wrote, he says as much toward the end of the speech when he notes that his dream will never become reality until black men and women in the South have the right to vote and black men and women in the North have something to vote for. He says as much when he implores those in the crowd to go back to the South and to work for these and other civil and human rights, even in the face of great adversity and suffering. Just because King dreamed what America could be, did not make it so. He also made reference to a less quoted, but maybe more accurate to King's true self, a speech that was given at the Riverside Church in New York City, April 4th, 1967. In that speech, he was saying things not to soothe the soul, not just to help us soar in our hearts with soaring rhetoric, but calling out deep ills in society ills that have yet to be redressed. How often are these quotes trotted out on MLK Day? When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. And on the question of alleviating poverty, he said in that speech, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense 
than on programs of social uplift is a nation approaching spiritual death. If we're honest with ourselves, I mean truly honest, whether we quote such material often has less to do with what we think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and more to do with what we already think about the topics he addresses in those quotes. We all selectively quote, including regarding Dr. Martin Luther King, but sometimes in the other direction. In this intersectional, sometimes dangerous world, there are supporters of Dr. King who cloak themselves in Dr. King's righteous rage and then rage against the Jewish state, conveniently leaving out what their prophet thought about Israel, both before and after the Six-Day War. In a letter to an anti-Zionist friend that he wrote in August 1967, he wrote, you declare, my friend, that you do not hate the Jews, you are merely anti-Zionist. And I say, let the truth ring forth from the high mountaintops. Let it echo through the valleys of God's green earth. When people criticize Zionism, they mean Jews. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jewish people, has been and remains a blot on the soul of mankind. In this we are in full agreement. So know also this. Anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitic and ever will be so. You don't always hear that quoted by some who raise up King as their forever prophet. And in August 1968, Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference participated in a gathering that was filled with the lambasting of the state of Israel. And Jewish communities were upset. King sent a letter to Adolf Held, who was then the president of the very left-wing Jewish Labor Committee, in order to allay their fears. Dr. King said he, first of all, he offered only opening remarks at that conference, but did not participate in the conference. And had he been present during the discussion of the resolutions, quote, I would have made it crystal clear that I could not have supported any resolution calling for black separatism or calling for a condemnation of Israel and an unqualified endorsement of the policy of the Arab powers. Israel's right to exist as a state is incontestable. He then added rather stridently, so, so stridently that it's even a tiny bit awkward for me, for this Zionist to say this from the Bema, these are his words, not mine. At the same time, the great powers have the obligation to recognize that the Arab world is in a state of imposed poverty and backwardness, backwardness that must threaten peace and harmony, end quote. So who or what is the real Dr. MLK? Who gets to quote him? For whom is he a prophet? Can he be quoted honorably at the same time by those who take opposite sides of the same issue? The answer is indubitably, absolutely. Is that dishonest? Or is that the way the world of ideas works? And is this really how complex every one of us is? Which brings us back to God and God's supposed indivisible oneness. In Parshat Va'era, which we read, we, she, read this morning, there's an unusually long commentary of Rashi. Rashi's commentary in the 11th century France is usually terse and to the point. 
In this long Rashi, he's going at it at the interaction between God and Moshe at the burning bush from earlier on in the Torah. And the question at hand is, in this whole episode, this whole era, is God merely anointing Moshe and liberating Moshe's generation? Or is God rebuking Moshe and the enslaved generation he represents? It's a very involved discussion. I don't want to go into the details, but it relies on a very close reading of text from the book of Exodus, from this parsha, and text from the book of Genesis. And it's a comparison to the Avot, to the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, according to this read, took God's future promise of redemption and said, okay, we'll wait for it. Didn't, not, didn't nudge God, didn't complain to God, didn't say, when is it happening? But this generation seems to say, according to this reading, you're liberating us? When? What time? I'm ready. Come already. And impatience regarding divine redemption. Rashi usually chooses the one thing that he thinks the verses of the Torah mean. Not this time. He explores the Midrashic reading, which suggests that God was tisk-tisking Moshe and the slaved Israelites. And then Rashi says, L'chach ani omer, you know what? Therefore I say, Yashev ha-mikra apshuto. Let the verse just be understood in its most simple understanding. And then he quotes the book of Exodus, sorry, the book of Proverbs, Mishlei, Dibor Davor Al-Ofnav. It's just words that are understandable based on its simple possible meaning. That's what I think the verse really means. None of this midrashic interpretation that the Israelites were being rebuked here. But then Rashi says in the next line, the Hadrasha Tidaresh. You want to make a midrash on it? You want to read it interpretively? You want to say it doesn't mean this, but it means that? Go ahead. Have fun. Read it entirely opposite to the way I read it. Shene'amar, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 23, who says, This is how my word should be understood. Like fire. Like a hammer, which smashes open a rock. And on that line, the Talmud expands, God's word is like a fiery being, but a hammer slams on it, and it disperses into many different sparks, all going in different directions. It's even more interesting if you think of the context in the book of Jeremiah from which this quote is taken. The context is the difference between false prophets and true prophets. And it's the opposite of what you might think. According to this reading, false prophets, their words emerge like light coming out of a laser beam, anachronistically. Straight, obvious, clear, unerring, not subject to debate, internally consistent. That's false prophecy. But the word of God and the word of God's true prophets, like a hammer slamming open a rock, splintering into a hundred, a thousand shades and hues and tastes and reasons, including many internal inconsistencies. The fact that God's word is a never-ending multiplicity is the tr proof that it is good, that it is real, that it is true. On some level, of course, there is one God and one Torah. And on some level, the notion of anyone 
any one anyone, or the true meaning of any one anything, is preposterous. And don't we do it all the time? And don't we critique others for how they do it, whoever they are? Don't we in this community sometimes rail at those to the right of us religiously and say they're punctilious about this observance and that ritual observance, but what about ethics? What about tikkun olam? That's also in the tradition. Can't just forget about that. And they critique us for how we do it. What about Shabbat, they might say, and mikvah, and pretty much the whole book of Leviticus. Journalists have to write articles, and they can't quote endless sources. There will always be those left unquoted, including perhaps previous statements by the person that was quoted that might have disagreed with the one that was. I think the question is, is the journalist aiming for truth? or for clicks. And Dr. Martin Luther King will always be a prophet, thank God, to many, including to those who revile one another across political divides. His complexity will never be singularly reduced or applied. And it's raw conjecture to imagine and it's folly to be certain about what he might say or do today. But when we do turn to him and harness his words, are we hoping to be inspired, to be moved, to change, or just have our own certainties reinforced? And God to the Jew will always be indivisible. And God's Torah will always be endlessly divisible. Every week the same parsha is used for sermon fodder from bimas around the world, often being harnessed for the for and the against any particular political or even religious notion, rather than see that as a weakening of the fabric of the holy tradition, I think it's the very thing that makes it durable, allows so many who are so different to stand underneath its tent, to use it as a guiding compass, to feel some brotherhood and sisterhood in being known as and living as a Jew, with Torah's sparks splintering out often disagreeing with one another, and yet somehow always finding some dark corner of the world of ideas that needs light. And regarding what I said today, you can quote me on it, any part that you like. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.